don't like to think of yourself as like a, having a brand. And the idea from the beginning was always like wooden wand and this or wooden wand yeah. and that, like uh, Neil Young and the Stray Gators. Neil Young to, and to have Stray. sort of a rotating cast of musicians, right? With a fixed point being yeah. wooden wand, and it's like it's not a name that I, I like relate to necessarily, but it's not a name I'm embarrassed by. It's yeah. fine. But every time I've tried to shed the name, has met with you know almost a Seinfeldian sequence of just bad events that occurring in its wake and labels have absolutely tried to discourage me from doing anything but wooden wand why would you try to shed the name i guess because there's baggage you know there's a, there's a ceiling for it and, and i think how people, old were you when you came up with it let's see wooden wand started in, i guess around 2003 or 4 so i would have been maybe 24 25 years That's old not bad. it's not like one of those things you did when you were 14 and had to carry around no there's course, a lot of those yeah. people walking around in the world that's true yeah and I guess for me, it's like the, the thing I always think about as a music fan and as somebody who buys a lot of records is if somebody heard a Wooden Wand record in 2006 and maybe didn't like it, they're, they're not going to check out a Wooden Wand record in 2017. It's just it's, it's kind of a strange irony in, in this business. And in, I guess in a lot of worlds, I mean, it's like it's like the Orson Welles thing, like people tend to peak in their 20s when they're basically barely developing. And and they spend the rest of their lives saying, no, no, but this thing yeah. that I just did, you know, which is a strange thing that I don't think is unique to the music industry, but. I don't know. You, you, I think you spend a lot of time trying to like uh, sort of outrun those shadows. Do you feel like you're constantly getting better album to album? I like to think so. I mean, I think I, I, I know with, with all due humility, I think I know how to write a song. And I, I say that, you know, with an asterisk because I, I, there's not many things I'm good at, but I'm, I'm good at writing songs. But I've been listening to your stuff for a while and you've, you've always known how to write a song. Yeah. I think some of the early, I mean, if we're going to get into like the, what I, what I, I cringe about when sure. I was in early wooden one stuff, that, like lyrically there's, there's uh well, for one thing, there's there's bad syntax and just grammar things that are, I'm, as being a stickler, bug me. But it's more of the things that there are there are sort of male gazy songs. Yeah. In yeah. the great tradition of yeah. my heroes of like you know sad eyed lady of the lowlands and Sarah, this sort of like mythical female figure, and like I credit my my wife a lot for drawing my attention to that. That that's it's kind of like it's a fine line Your between like of, right yeah. right it's a fine line between that sort of celebration and like just being being a creep you yeah. know um, so things like that. I don't know. I think every lyricist, every songwriter will tell you that there are lines they wish they could go back and just fill sure. in the syllables differently. You know, that's just kind of how it goes. But once something has a barcode on it and is out in the world, there's yeah. no sense really worrying about it. You got to just gonna make another one. <laughs> but but everything or most of what you do is autobiographical from the sense that, you know, if you do write a song that is potentially objectifying women or just for for whatever reason you you feel a certain sense of regret about you're not able to sort of divorce yourself writing it from a, you know the the point of view of the song yeah that's a good point actually because i, I really do resist the idea that everything is autobiographical yeah. and uh and that self-expression is is even like you know paramount it's not necessarily it's yeah. sometimes it's just about communicating and i like to do i like to think that i do inhabit certain characters i mean like any author i like to you know try to see things from another perspective i think it's important to develop empathy and to like try to get somebody to feel like well i can relate to that even yeah. if i'm not james toad but i think like you maybe said is like i think there's always a little bit of autobiography in everything anybody writes and you know, if I say fewer and not less, and I'll cringe about it the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> or vice versa. You're, you're able to give yourself a little bit of creative leeway because something just sounds better if it's not grammatically correct, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Things definitely sing better than other things. Yeah. And, and I always kind of like half joke that my accent when I sing is rock and roll. 
I mean, I grew up in New York. I was born in Brooklyn, but I've spent more than half my life in the South. So if a song calls, I mean, I just listen to Mick Jagger on like Beggar's Banquet and think, you know, he's he's clearly not worried about, <laughs> you know. That and is a funny thing of British guys singing like Americans and American guys singing yeah. like Brits. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's and and in Jagger's case, it's so bad. Yeah. Like the the you know the Dear Doctor, <laughs> yeah, middle section in the falsetto, is so yeah. bad. But, but I mean, you know, I just I, I learned well, to salt sing. Salt of the Earth is really like. Literally, yeah. or uh, girl with the far away eyes is—it's almost him like making fun of people yeah. from the south. It's hard to fool to cry. Yeah. All these, kind, yeah. It's and, hard to separate that too, of where it's like homage and, and mimicry. Yeah, and it gets kind of it gets kind of gross, yeah. I think. But at the same time, it's it's. I mean, I learned to sing, sing along to like. Well, first it was like Ozzy, and then it was Lou Reed and Royal Trucks. Yeah. You know, so it's like I, I just whatever the song calls for. Yeah, like I, I have that thing where. When I go and, and, and visit other places, or even when I'm with people with different accents for long enough, I start to adopt it. Yeah. I, yeah. I get really self-conscious about that because I do worry that at some point it sounds like you're sort of mocking them. But totally. when you hear a sort of a melody or rhythm, a patter in somebody's voice, it's like it's almost fun to co-opted yeah you, you pick up the cadence yeah. instantly and like i mean uh you know i grew up in on staten island so my parents kind of say coffee and talk and stuff yeah. and i get on the phone while i don't i don't lapse into that accent i do tend to talk louder and faster <laughs> and my wife who's from alabama she i mean uh yeah the y'alls start flowing a yeah. little differently so yeah it's funny and you go overseas and like i've you know i've been to a lot of different places uh in the world and you do kind of just pick up a, a certain lilt in England or, you know, like, or a brogue. I mean, I don't want to offend anybody by, like, saying, like, oh, Irish people speak like this. But you absolutely do start to feel your, the inflections yeah. and the cadence of your voice, which is kind of neat because regional accents are kind of going away in a lot of ways. I'm from California originally. And I've always perceived what I have as a lack of an accent. Right. The non-regional and, dialect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it is very much a California thing. And it does feel like we are, everyone's kind of headed in that direction. Right? Yeah. Everyone's going to be a newscaster. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other funny thing, too, is the transatlantic accent of right. like the 50s and 60s. Which yeah, I read was, that article recently. Oh, it was really yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, which I think was just totally a piece of artifice or like them trying to find some sort of commonality between England and America. Exactly. Yeah. And then it just became this proper way of speaking. It's like Hollywood speak. Yeah. You know, it's like if you watch a movie from the 40s yeah, or yeah. 50s. I mean, how did you really transition from, you know, being a being a rock guy to just being kind of a acoustic singer songwriter? Uh, I kind of I just go back and forth. When I think of you, that's yeah. what I think of is more is kind of softer. Yeah, well, I mean, for lack of a better descriptor, I, I feel like I'm part of the folk tradition. Yeah, but um, but I include in the folk tradition like Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and yeah. even even the Velvet Underground in a lot of ways. Yeah. His first album. I mean, there's sure. clearly Dylan is all over. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, but yeah, I'm comfortable in that zone because I again I feel like I I, I know how to do it. I've I've figured out yeah. how to how to work in that idiom. But it's the music I listen to the least. A singer-songwriter music is something I don't really ever put on at home. When you say idiom, you're essentially saying, like, I know how to play by that set of rules, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I know how to exist in that world. Yeah. And you do risk sort of pigeonholing yourself. Sure. But, I mean, it, there is, I mean, I do believe in the craft of songwriting. I think yeah. some people don't believe in the craft or, or, or just dismiss the very idea of a craft of songwriting. But to me, I feel like hearing a really lean John Prine song, you just hear every every part is perfect as if you were reading... Yeah you know, a great short story. It's like every, there's just an economy of language. There's there's a, a way that things... And, and you even hear it in some country music and even some modern country music. You, you hear a punchline and you know, the twist and you're like, ah, I see what he did there. You know, it's like, it's kind of a lost art in a lot of ways. It's, it's almost like an Emily Dickinson poem. If I write a song, I should be able to perform it for someone with one finger on a piano 
yeah. and sing along and for t- them to get a, at least a sense of the song and the craft of the song itself you know yeah and obviously there's there's obviously a, a great number of different kinds of music yeah. that don't rely on that those rules at all and those are mus- that's music that i like a lot there are musicians that make the studio an instrument yeah and i mean i think Eno, one of my favorite quotes yeah. and I, i'm paraphrasing him but he said this great thing that I, i've always remembered is that you know when when plays became movies and tv we started calling them movies and tv but when music became records we mm. kept calling it music and really it's a completely different medium and i hope i'm yeah. not butchering what he's trying to say but you know, a band on a on a Saturday night playing like Howlin' Wolf covers is a lot different than a guy in his bedroom making like house music. I mean, yeah. those things are—it's almost a completely different art form. And I've always felt closer to the latter of those two things. Huh. You know, I like making records. I don't necessarily always enjoy playing live. Really? I don't feel like perform. I, I, you know, I never des- designed myself as a performer. I never wanted yeah. to be a performer, but I love making records. I've never made a record and didn't leave the studio feeling great. I was reading an interview on the way here, and I saw you. You mentioned something along the lines of, of, at least, not being a performer first. Do you get nervous? Is the act of playing in front of people not enjoyable? I, I just don't. I don't think it's necessary to exhibit yourself sure. making the kind of music that I'm, I'm making. Okay. And and it's it's such a lifestyle connotation of playing a show. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be here tonight till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And it's a Sunday night. You yeah. know, I mean, you can't ask that of, of a lot of people. And honestly, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily be here. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, if I wasn't playing a show, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's a certain age you get past and you're just like, ah, you kind of age out. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't know. I, I've just never felt um, comfortable. That doesn't mean I get nervous. I mean, I've been doing this for so long. I don't really get, yeah. I wouldn't call it nervous. There is a, an anxiety, but it's more about variables. It's more about like, I hope the sound is the same on stage as it was during sound check, yeah. or I hope so-and-so doesn't hit the snare too late on that one song that he always hits the snare. You know, like that kind of stuff, but I wouldn't Someone. call that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I won't mention the member of the band that did, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, those things are just kind of yeah. weird. But I, I do love making records, and I feel like that's where I feel most at home and most comfortable. Is story necessary to you as a musician to, for your livelihood? It's more chicken with its head cut off at this point. I'm, it's, it's, I mean, is I've been doing mean? it for so long. It's just, it's, it seems like rote. It's, it's something yeah. you do. And the old cliche is that like musicians will tell you, and I'm sure you've heard this before. Someone will be like, you know, you're out there 23 hours a day toiling. You're driving. You're like sleeping in bad places. You're eating like garbage. It's, it's all worth it for that one hour, man. And for me, it's like the exact opposite. Huh. Like touring is like a passport to travel. Like I've been to, I can't count how many countries. I've been to every state in the U.S. except Alaska and Hawaii at least twice. I've done it because I play music and yeah. that's pretty amazing. And the part on stage is sometimes it's great. I mean, I've had great shows, but for the most part, I'm I'm not ever like looking forward to that part. What's the difference between a good show and a bad show? Uh, again, it, there's a lot of variables, the the crowd, the the sound on stage, the energy of the band. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's a simple matter of the merch table. I mean, honestly, like if I'm being completely candid, sometimes I feel like a traveling salesman for merch and beer, you know? Yeah. And if you play a great show and it's like packed and it feels really good and people are calling out for songs and then you go to the merch table and you're not selling anything, you think, hmm, yeah, what were we commu- like? Maybe maybe they all have the record. You know? <laughs> I don't know, but like I think that for me, like communicating is the most important thing. I make music so I don't necessarily need to have friends. In a lot of, I know it's a weird thing to say, but I, I like the idea that we we pass these bulletins, these transmissions to each other yeah. across space and time. I mean, I can write a song now that somebody could hear in 30 years. I could be dead. And they'll be like, oh, wow, I totally I felt that way, too. You know, yeah. and that's a great way to communicate from one human being to another beyond small talk, beyond like likes on Twitter. And it's like it's a really neat way to communicate. And I feel like if you want to, you know, understand, 
you know, a certain kind of person or people, you can listen to songs. And I don't think live always translates. The connections that you make on the road are often sort of superficial because you're, uh, you know, kind of a vagrant in a sense. You no, know, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I have, I've been very fortunate. I have a lot of really good friends yeah. all over the world. And, and, uh, I, I, I value those friendships. Absolutely. But I, I mean, as far as like making new friendships, yeah. I, mean, I feel like if I disappeared tomorrow, I would like to think that the, if the records continued, they're almost like messages in a bottle that get across. And every once in a while you make a record and it's like, it's like watching the message in the bottle sink before it gets to the other shore for whatever reason. There's different reasons that might happen, but, and that's, that's to me, that's failure. That's, that's, that's the closest I get to feeling like what I'm doing is not resonating when the message doesn't seem to land i just interviewed uh, frankie rose mm-hmm. you know her i know um, the name i've seen yeah her. you know and she had something similar where it's, it's funny that you were talking about pitchfork outside because uh, we, we had this exact conversation um it was right before her album just came out last week mm-hmm. so i interviewed her a week or two before that and you know we were having that conversation around sort of you know what what import that the pitchfork number was and and how things were received and this idea of so she put out an album in 2014 that was really well received and then the next one like it just nothing happened Mm -hmm. and she couldn't figure out why and it the sense that i got from her is that it it seems like it's a lot more of a crapshoot now than it ever was just based on the sort of um instability of the music industry hmm I wonder. I mean, I, I, I'm conspiracy-minded about stuff like that. And I wonder if, uh, although that's probably true, I think it's always been a bit of a lottery. But yeah. I, I do think there are ways that people can become successful. And it has very little to do with luck or, or the lottery of rock and roll, as, it, as it's put in the, availed, uh, the, um, the Anvil documentary. Um, I think money is, is the elephant in the room. And yeah. it's something tacky that no one's supposed to talk about. I think she meant that from the standpoint of I think she went through something similar that you've gone through quite a bit in your career, which is that is that the sort of instability of the record labels mm-hmm. and like she has put out on she's put out three or four records and they've all kind of been on different labels. Right. And because of that, you know, you never really know at any given time whether or not they're and you're right, this does come down to money, whether there's going to be a promotional push behind it. Right. Whether there's going to be a music video and that. It seems like in 2017, a music video shouldn't make sense, but that yeah. kind of thing, it really does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I feel for her. I, I understand that. Yeah. And it's and, um, sometimes it's really it's really difficult to wrap your brain around feeling like you've, you're making something better than the last thing you made, and the last thing you made got a lot more attention. Yeah. But, and again, there's things, so many factors. There's a label, there's a PR, there's a time of year, there's what's going on in the world, and... I mean, you, you know, it's 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 easy to blame things, but sometimes it's just bad luck. Is there a point where you sort of, you know, give up on a record because it's just not, it only sort of gets a certain part of the way there? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I don't know if I give up on, I mean, like, I think once I approve a test pressing of a record, yeah. I, I forget about it. It's like, it's, like okay. clearing out, it's like clearing out a hard drive. So like, you've already given up on it by I'm, the time it's in the world. In a way, I mean, because I, mean, I play the songs and, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I've probably said this in other interviews, but the, the line in the Simon and Garfunkel song, Homeward Bound, where he says, all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, I always felt like that was about tour. Because yeah. you write the song and it means something to you, and you record the song and it means something yeah. to you, and you play it a few times and it means something to you, and then after the sixth or seventh time... And, and anyone who says anything other than this is lying. It's like you do check out sometimes. You know a song really well, and like you're not present in the in the moment yeah. of where you were when you wrote the song. And so, I don't know. It feels like I'm always writing the next record. I'm always like, once a record has has you know has been the test pressing's been approved, it's been mastered. I, I try to think of it just 
like it's on an external hard drive somewhere off offloaded from my brain and now I can I'm free to come up with new things, you know. But unless you're writing songs about how awesome it is to be in a rock and roll band yeah. <laughs> and how cool it is to play live, of course you're going to be sort of diverse from that reality, right? You're you're carrying whatever context you've had in the day and then you've got to get up there and attempt to sort of try to channel where you were or right. or do you have to? I mean, is it important to kind of try to put yourself in the moment that you were when you wrote the song? I think if you want to be believable and to be yeah. taken seriously, it's, it's, I guess it, the equivalent would be like method acting. But, uh, I mean, I write a lot of songs, and it's hard to, it's hard to you know, feel like... The Daniel thing. Day-Lewis of uh, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Like, I walk around, everyone has to call me Wooden Wand, you know, yeah. Um, I don't know, it's a funny thing. It's a weird sort of mutation, the, the songwriting thing. And yeah. You don't know where they come from and stuff, and sometimes they just, they're, they're like bad, they're like... You have five children, and I, I think it's a cliche, and I'd, I'd reject the idea that songs are children, but just for this one example, you have five children, and four of them are great, you know, uh, straight-A students, and there's the one that's just born bad and, like, is just huh. in trouble, and sometimes the song's just, I don't know, you, there's a song that kind of bugs you or something. Well, by the time it makes it on the record, you've vetted it pretty thoroughly, right? Yeah, or, or who is producing it, or yeah. other people in the band who discouraged me from putting this song on the record and wanted me to put that one on instead. You know, there's always those concessions and compromises, which is part of the fun, actually, I, I, you know. I, I, I'm not a control freak. When you get a bad review, or even if you just don't get any sort of reception, I mean, yeah. you put out a lot of albums. Sure. Odds are that some of them aren't aren't going to land. I mean, do you take that to heart, or I mean, it sounds like you've kind of moved on to a degree, but from the standpoint of you're really trying to reach people, yeah. as you said, and if it doesn't reach people, it feels feels like a failure in a sense. Sure, but but. Critics aren't people, <laughs> at least not in the way I, I don't know. It sounds crazy, but I, sure. in the way I'm talking about it. Like, no, no, no. I, you're I, right from the standpoint of I write about a lot of things. I write about music. I write about comic books and movies and sure. all these things. And, and certainly it takes the that initial spark of joy that you had that made you fall in love with those things. When it becomes your living, you get removed from that. And I think you're when you're looking at things critically as a job, you're certainly not approaching them the same way that listeners and fans do right no that's absolutely true yeah i think that's true i think that um it's strange because it, it, it it's this quotidian exercise I, i'd be making records probably well i don't know i don't know if i'd be making them if no one was listening i would like to think that i wouldn't be because they're like i said the goal is to communicate and if, yeah. if, if i'm on a desert island uh you know figuratively or literally there's really no reason to create but i like to think that i still get a real kick out of creating songs i still get a kick out of like 10 minutes ago this song didn't exist and now there's a there's one new song in the world i mean it sounds corny but it still like feels good when that happens yeah so um but i guess at a certain point i would probably stop doing it um if people weren't listening but i do feel like people listen and 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 uh you never know you 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 play these places you go on tour and you play a small place or you play a house show or a record store and you think well this will be a night i will never remember after in three days i'll never remember playing this but but then it's an amazing show and people come out and they're like quoting your lyrics to you and you think oh it is actually getting through into the cracks you know it feels good maybe that's another reason to tour i don't know yeah maybe there's uh also something we said about having low expectations when it comes to shows nowadays you have to yeah but but when one of them (laughs) one of them actually breaks through i mean it's that much more you know if you go in expecting everything to be a big blockbuster you're about to be disappointed sure and like I honestly I, I understand why people don't come to shows as much anymore. Um I was speaking to with a friend of mine recently about this 
when we were kids and we'd go see a hardcore band, yeah. like all we had was the seven inch and we didn't know like what the band even looked like. And in hardcore that they could have been like squatter punks or they could have been like jock looking dudes. Or they yeah. could have been like yeah. emo fashionista type. We didn't know. Could have been and, like a Henry Rollins. Right. Yeah. Could have been like meatheads or whatever. Yeah. It's like, like you could, you show up and you're like, I wonder what this band's going to be like. Right. And then like, Oh wow. They're like this. And, and so now it's like, I'm curious about this new band. So I go on, youtube and there's like a three camera angle like yeah. high definition here's their twitter feed of every thought that they've had every thought they've had plus also their set here's their yeah. whole set in like you know high def and like great sound like why, why are you gonna go pay 14 dollars and like be in a crowded room like past your bedtime or something yeah i just don't it's just it's a weird it's kind of you know it's taken some of the mystique out of is it a reality of just in general fewer people going to shows or you know we're getting older and mm-hmm. and the people who have been following you for a long time are older and they're having kids sure and, yeah and you know i'm sure that you still have some younger people discovering you and coming out but yeah. that's also a natural progress that's true yeah but I mean, there are definitely evergreen artists, and, yeah. and I think those are the those are the bars that I look. I mean, you know, the Mount Rushmores. Yeah. You know, Dylan, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, Jimi Hendrix. You know, take your pick. People yeah. who will always sell records and always the ones who are live always sell out rooms. So I don't know. I think it's it's a more recent thing that that there's there's a, a fickleness. And um, again, I'm not I'm not like boohooing about it. I don't I don't think I think I've been really lucky in a lot of ways. I think it's something that's very unique to uh, what what for lack of a better word I'll, I'll say is indie rock because i noticed that metal dudes always buy the die hard blood red edition they pre-order it and like jam band people will go to these festivals and yeah. they'll they'll watch all the opening bands they'll buy seven dollar waters and when you know country music fans go to walmart they'll always bundle their groceries with a toby mm. keith cd so it's weird that it's this it seems like it's something that really does affect you know relatively speaking affect the kind of indie rock world mm. this sort of what have you done for me lately mentality tim mcgraw fans will be buying tim mcgraw cds until they're no longer manufactured i don't know if that's true for you know a sub pop band or a matador band anyway you make a concerted effort to make each record different and is that is that part of that process is keeping it not only interesting yourself but attempting to sort of keep people engaged and to keep the examples that you gave of artists who have you know aged gracefully or at least have still have people coming out are the ones who have managed to completely reinvent themselves right yeah and that's that's something that i admire very much but it's also if you don't have anything new to say don't make another record like if if i made a record that sounded like the last record then I'm, i'm doing something wrong um you know if you liked say second attention like Listen to it again. <laughs> you know, if you like Farmer's Corner, listen so when to it again. you when you say something new to say, you mean just artistically? In yeah, general, artistically, right, uh, right, orally like, and yeah, like like Brian, I can con- I can assure you today on this day, my my latest record is Clippership. Yeah, I will never make a record that sounds like Clippership ever again. I don't want to. I feel like I've done that record, and now I want to do something else. So you know? what? So what's your sort of my main job is in tech, so we call it the elevator pitch. So what oh, is your, yeah, I know what's, the what's the elevator pitch for the, this record? For clipper shit, yeah, uh, I would say it's like exploded string band music. It's like post 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 modern, you know. <laughs> well, I just really wanted to take the elements. <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really long convoluted elevator trip yeah. you're taking. <laughs> yeah, maybe let's take the stairs. <laughs> I, I think I, I, what I was really interested in was like living in Kentucky and uh, listening to a lot of. There's a great um, series of compilations called "Times Ain't What They Used to Be" or "Times Ain't Like They Used to Be" on the Yazoo label. Okay, uh, maybe that's like country blues stuff. Yeah, right? old yeah. country blues, and like and and also like we, we listen to a lot of like 
jazz and blues yeah. and stuff, but, but a lot of country and bluegrass and things at the house. And I don't, I by no means want to make an old timey record yeah. or a bluegrass record, but I did want to take some of those elements, those aesthetics and the sonic elements and just the, the, the feel and the vibe of those yeah. records and, and work them into what I was doing and make these sort of protracted, like droneier versions of those. And obviously there are people who've done that. I mean, Henry Flint's work is absolutely an example of that. Some of Avon Kang's work was an influence. Uh, but um, but I, I did want to kind of explore that and, and, and apply what I do like a, from a songwriting perspective and not just make like a droney record using acoustic or old-timey instruments and mandolins and fiddles, but like try to like make a wooden wand record out of that yeah. sonic palette. And I thought that was... You know, a pretty big about, about face from the last few records that I've made, which were more like, you know, with rock bands or, uh, you know, just more more traditional instrumentation and stuff like that. No, that's an interesting point. I actually haven't listened to it in a while, but I've definitely gone through like deep phases of, um, you know, like Skip James mm, and course, yeah. Charlie Patton and mm-hmm. like that really, or, or like Henry Thomas. But I've always had this sense that while obviously like all of rock and roll is influenced by blues and a lot of amazing artists have been, then in a lot of cases, when you think about people who refer to themselves as blues artists, that they often like take the wrong lessons. Right. <laughs> like the thing that they have in common with the blues is is that sort of like that that eight bar structure. Right. But those really sort of haunting elements of it are I I don't think something that's been nearly as widely adopted. Yeah, they learn the licks and they learn the yeah. they learn the sort of tricks. But I think that the, there's a feel to it. But I, I don't think you can capture that feel. I don't. I don't want to hear somebody. I don't want to hear a record. If some, if you told me like there's this guy and it's kind of like it's like a mix of like Skip James, like Bentonia tuning, real moody, dark, mixed yeah. with like you know, I don't know Mississippi John Hurt, like a real nimble finger yeah, painting. Yeah. Like I don't want to hear that guy. But you like, know what about so so, so so you know the Lead Belly song um, uh, in the Pines? Yeah, well, of course you do. I yeah, mean, of well, course yeah, you do, right? Yeah. Most people are age know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. MTV like, obviously, Kurt Cobain covered <laughs> right. it. And obviously, you know that because yeah. you listen to that stuff. But, but no, I mean, the reason why I bring it up is because of the Kurt Co- Cobain cover, which is, you know, great. But there's this, and I can't put my finger on it, and even as somebody who's been writing about music for a long time, but there is this, there's this feeling to that song, to the mm-hmm. original song, to yeah. the way that Lead Belly sings it, yeah. of almost sort of like existential dread that i get absolutely i think that's right yeah and and that's that's something that's difficult to capture i mean when you when you are talking about these old pieces of music and and there's some essence that you're trying to distill what is it exactly well i mean my 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 first my first um my first thought was to respond and say authenticity but i don't think that's right you're I don't, a white guy from Staten Island. Exactly. Right. Precisely. <laughs> precisely. And again, just like Putting I don't, indie rock I don't want to. Yeah. I, I don't want to hear the guy like like I said, yeah. who, who's like aping Skip James. I, I want to listen to Skip James. I don't want to. What was the band from Ghost World? Uh, like oh, Blues Hammer. Blues Hammer. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can really capture that stuff. And I think that's why it's important to build on the tradition rather than yeah. like do some facsimile of it or or to try to like mimic it because that's where you get into this weird, you know, um, kind of appropriation and 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 just this gross sort of. Uh, but then again, like you were saying, like rock and roll is kind of built on that stuff. I mean, we wouldn't yeah. have Canned Heat or Rolling Stones or, yeah. you know, any number of great bands. Well, Canned Heat, God bless them, but Canned Heat is an example of a band that is just aping or lifting. Well, you mentioned Henry Thomas. Maybe yeah, that was yeah, why yeah, it was in yeah. my head. And yeah. I, I or, love playing that. I love playing Bulldoze Blues for yeah, people who've yeah, never heard it. it. And they're like, oh, that's so... And speaking of Skip James, the Stephen Galt book, I'd Rather Be the Devil, is, is an excellent. Yeah. I'd highly recommend it. If you're interested even a little yeah, bit yeah, in Skip yeah. James of that period of the blues, like pre-war blues. So you get off tour and, yeah. and, you know, I assume at a certain point it's like, okay, it's time to start 
doing this thing in earnest. Yeah. It's yeah. time to like start new, making a record. record. Yeah. You've been writing around a little bit, you know, as, as you're on tour, obviously like you're the nice thing about being on tour is you can live your life. Right. And you know, you can draw from that. You're collecting things. Yeah. yeah. But, but you sort of, you, you sit down and you're kind of formulating a, some sort of overarching theme, not necessarily in terms of lyrics, but just right. some feel that you're going for. How does that process start? Well, it starts with writing a whole bunch of songs that have nothing to do with each other. Okay. You know, like I, I, I write songs when, when they come and I don't, I mean, people say that I'm prolific. It's in every, that word is in almost every review of Wooden yeah. One since the beginning, but, um, you put out a lot I of just, records. Yeah. Maybe, maybe too many, but I don't, I don't <laughs> think I write too many songs. Yeah. I think that you have to write 10 kind of lousy ones to get one good one. And I, I, I don't, I think the thing that, that I do differently from a lot of songwriters and I, I just being out in the, in the field, in the wilderness, I've talked to a lot of songwriters is that I finish everything I start. Mm. Somebody will write a, a verse and they'll be like, Oh, I don't like that. Or that reminds yeah. me of something else. And they throw it away. It's like, I think making a song exists. I'm like almost superstitious about it. Like make it happen and then move on and do something else. So I collect a ton of songs and then six or seven start to look like they're they're good bedfellows like they seem to be getting along with each other like mm. they're at the part of the scene it's like you know you look at a, a group of high school students and like yeah. this these are the three guys that are going to be jocks and these are the three guys that are yeah, going to yeah. like dye their hair green you know but and they, they start taking form they start taking form yeah. these like weird almost like alliances between songs <laughs> and and then then a record sort of comes into view and then you know maybe you're listening to another record another or you know hearing something for the first time you think oh that's a great idea like let's take this idea and like see if it works with these songs you know and uh and then you get rid of the other songs well so there are certain songs that don't make it because they're just not good or they're not up to your standards but there are ones that don't make it just because they don't play nicely with the other ones exactly yeah yeah and i think probably lost a lot of good songs that way uh, yeah i think some good friends of mine would tell me i've lost a lot of yeah of my best songs that way and that's why i release like limited edition things and like band camper because songs that have no real common theme they're just a group of songs that yeah you know, a few people said they liked or that heard them. And I thought, man, maybe they have a life beyond the hard drive or whatever. But, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think that maybe sometimes a song will go on a record. That's not as good as another song, but it works so well in the flow of the other songs that you're creating. It. I guess I still believe in the album. Why you know? is, why is that consistency important? I mean, a lot of great albums have been all over the place, right? That's true. That's true. I guess it's just important to me. It's not yeah. necessarily important. I listen back to some of my favorite records from when I was a kid, especially like Neil Young records. And you notice they're recorded years apart, different studios, different players, yeah. and they never sounded weird to me or inconsistent. Yeah. So, uh, so I think it's just a hang up I have for my own, my own way of viewing it. I, I kind of like to think of records as having personalities, you know, different, you know, the groups of songs. Have you ever written for anyone else? I have actually. And I mean, it seems like you've got all these things out there and yeah. maybe something would find a nice home with someone I, else. I have. I've, I've done some writing for people who've recorded my songs and yeah. that's always a thrill. Uh, it's happened quite a few times and then I've done some ghost writing and yeah. things like that. Um, and I love that. And if I could just do that for, let's say, 90% of the time and then make a record once every year or so, I would do that. I love doing that and I love hearing my words and, and melodies and things kind of, you know, uh, kind of going through yeah. di being distilled through someone else's seeing idea. how other people interpret what you're yeah even the words the way yeah. they the way they choose to to like you know to articulate certain words or to emphasize certain words i think that's a i get a real kick out of that so really what cool. is he i mean you like your job right you like what you do you're happy I, yeah relatively so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I like writing songs you're not just like i've been doing this for so long that i, I can't do anything else well, well there's an element are, of, there's an element of that but sure. i still i still love writing songs and I, I like traveling and i like yeah uh, yeah what's the most sort of purely enjoyable part of the whole thing 
somewhere between finishing a demo of a song at home, like knowing that it's finished, and doing the same in a studio. Yeah. Like at some point when like the overdubs are finished and the song is there and the harmonies are laid down, there's a solo. It's like, wow, that sounds and, – and it's good. Sometimes it's not good. <laughs> but when it's good, when you're like, wow, I, I would maybe maybe buy that record. <laughs> That's so interesting because it's not – I mean, it's not really the performing and it's not even really the writing. Yeah. It's the – enjoyment of the thing that you just made but then but you, you said earlier that you're someone once it's made you won't go back and listen to it right so there's just like a brief fleeting moment when you're able to really <laughs> enjoy the thing that you yeah made. well you got to keep chasing the high sort of you know you yeah. got to do it again chasing and the and, and i think well, while i'm enjoying the song in the studio listening to it on the monitors being finished or being mixed i'm thinking like wow i can't wait for people to hear this you know yeah. and then when i'm done hearing it like I'm, you know i just assume people are going to hear it and i can work on something else you know the way that it takes on an, another life when you're performing it live isn't that's not a sort of an interesting part of the creative process to you. The way you interpret it when you're standing up here or yeah. when you're playing with a, a group of different people, I assume that you pick and choose. Obviously, you're mostly reliant on the new album, but yeah. there are things you're pulling from elsewhere. Sure. And you're interpreting it with a different group of people, so it mm-hmm. must be there must be a little bit of a jolt of energy reinterpreting something you wrote in a different way. I don't know. I think I, I think it would be dishonest for me to say that that was the case. Yeah. I think the truth is I'm, I'm a practical person. And yeah. like I started this tour and I was playing with my good friend Ryan Norris, who plays as Coupler and is on Clippership. And yeah. and we played a show together and I, I thought these songs will be good with Ryan. And then Dave Seidel has been playing with me the, the last two nights, Philadelphia. And I had solo shows in between. And I've definitely tailored to sets thinking like, well, Ryan knows this song, but Dave doesn't know this song. <laughs> and then like, well, this song uh, is in this key and we can't have like three songs an E in a row. So really it is, it is more practical than cosmic for me. Yeah. And, and I don't think about the feeling of the, sometimes I do like walk into a room and acclimate to the room and, uh, or someone will write me on Twitter. Like, are you going to play such and such song tonight? And I'll, I'll think, well, I will now, you yeah. know, like I'm totally cool with honoring the, the requests and, and feeling out the vibe. And sometimes People are not into the jams and they want to hear like proper songs. And other times people get bored hearing country songs and I can like break out the jams. You know? but, it's, but, but it's ever just like, that was a really good thing that I wrote. Uh, not on stage. No. That doesn't happen on stage. No. <laughs> yeah. no. So someone will remind me of a song I wrote or like yeah. my wife will hear somebody covering one of my songs. And I'll be like, oh, that's, that's yeah. a good line. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> so you said you're in Kentucky? No, I, I lived in Kentucky for about seven years. Now I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And I love Richmond. I, I really like it there. What I always say is like the, the, the caveat is like I don't want my ashes scattered there, you know? Like I don't want to be buried in Richmond. But I, for now, I really like it there. Hmm. I don't know. I've lived, uh, lived my life as an Army brat. I'm, I'm not an Army brat, but like being a musician kind of makes you that way where yeah. you have to be able to move around and do. Yeah. And uh, my wife, she teaches at a university, and obviously the academia is almost as tricky as the music business yeah. navigates. So we're always kind of we never know where we're going to be living so which is kind of fun and, and exciting in some ways um so for right now richmond's great i'm from california and i live i live in queens now as we discussed earlier i can't i've spent a little bit of time in the south but i can't wrap my brain around kentucky kentucky's kind of strange um it's beautiful kentucky's yeah. a beautiful place and there's a great tradition of music in kentucky and louisville is a great great town I didn't really enjoy living in Lexington very much, but I made some really excellent friends that yeah. I'll probably have the rest of my life. And there's some great restaurants. And I mean, I saw Peter Brotzman there. It's certainly not like a, I saw Joe McPhee. It's certainly not like a, like a wasteland or a wilderness for culture. But is there a sort of that, that sense of, you know, of being in a place where, you know, you come to Brooklyn and like everybody looks like you, right? And, you know, everyone I've talked to who's become a, an artist of, of any kind, they've, they've told me about that, um, and, and I've, I've certainly felt this way too, of that 
that moment that you have where you sort of like find your kind. Sure, but that's that's a dangerous thing. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird that you know, I, 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 on my block on any given day, maybe not in Richmond, but in the past when I've lived in places like, you know, across the streets the fireman, and next door is the the guy who owns the store, and this guy sells cars, and I'm the musician. I'm the guy that goes on tour that they kind of whisper, oh, where's he going now? You yeah. know, like it's kind of weird to walk outside and just see other bands and see like, oh, what film are you working on? Yeah. What, what, where, where's your gallery exhibit? Like it's just kind of a weird homogenous like zone where you don't really um, you don't experience other points of view. And, and I think it's really easy to get lost because it's very it's, like you say, it's a very comfortable sure. place. I certainly like rolling out of the van on tour and being like, oh, there's the Thai food place. There's the record yeah. store. There's the cupcake yeah. shop and the bacon wrap dates and all that fun stuff, you know, but, but at the same time, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of a weird illusion to be living in. So I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I need to be around people who are like own like Lou Reed records. You know, yeah. that's, I've had this conversation a lot yeah, as it pertains to relationships of, um, you know, obviously when you first start dating somebody, you kind of want to find those commonalities, right? You know, sure. those are the things that you talk about. And, and maybe if you're interested in the same things, like you have similar sensibilities or there's something like innate in you that drew you to those things in the first sure. place. But then the thing that you risk is building an entire relationship on, on superficial things. Right. So, you know, when, when you're living in a place like Lexington where it's not a bunch of, you know, and I'm saying this as a, bespectacled bearded hipster there aren't a lot of bespectacled bearded hipsters around do you find yourself sort of going out of your way to interact with and make friendships with people who like lead a different life than you i wouldn't say i go out of my way but i don't go out of my way to avoid it yeah. um i've worked uh, between tours like during the downtime over the years i've worked a lot of i've worked a lot of shitty jobs yeah. i mean i've i've, oh, I've right. uh I've done, um, in addition to like some more, uh, you know, uh, noble things, I've, I've, I've done copy editing and things like that. But I've yeah. also like painted houses. Like I've copy done noble? Well, more noble than like working with prisoners, filling like vending machines and okay. stuff. I've done that. You know, I've done. By noble, uh, you mean, you know, you uh, don't develop calluses on your hands. Yeah. Like, well, or just res- maybe, maybe noble is about yeah, respectable, yeah. like yeah. Uh, to, to, to like a, a perspective, like mother-in-law, let's say. Okay. You know, if like, if a yeah. girl brought you home and is like, he's a copy editor, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, welcome to the family. It's like he, you know, he does roofing sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, between like going on tour. That's not, you know, yeah. but uh, I've done a lot of the work and it's great. It's great fodder for songs. And I imagine that if you were a fiction writer it'd be great father you're working around people who who've yeah. never ne- don't know what aquarium drunkard is yeah you know they've never they've never heard like a free jazz record and it's like they, they use expressions you've never heard and and some of them are terrible people and that's absolutely true but 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 i wouldn't say the majority of them are yeah. and it's really good to kind of get a different sense and, and and remember that not everybody on earth like you know listens to um you know i don't know bought the Led Zeppelin reissues. It's yeah. just it's just a weird you get out of the bubble a little bit. So I don't go out of my way. Well actually I think that's you a know. bad example. I think everyone on earth does Maybe you're right. That might be the great uniter of all <laughs> yeah, of us at the Led Zeppelin true. reissues. That's, that it's is like true. Adam Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're right about that. That's totally true. Um, but yeah, I just I, I don't know. I'm 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 sort of increasingly less comfortable in in, in like I love visiting Portland. I love visiting yeah. Brooklyn, but I don't I don't really want to live among a, you know, on, on a street full of like bands and labels. And yeah. I, I don't, that doesn't sound fun to me at all. I wonder if you sort of risk romanticizing some of those things too, at the same time though, of this sort of, you know, you, you grew up reading a lot of like Henry Bukowski or something mm-hmm. and you sort of like romanticize that side of things. The, the sort of working class, blue, like yeah, underbelly. Yeah, I guess, I guess you do. I guess that there's a, there's a danger of yeah. that uh, for sure. But um, 
I mean, those are those are real people that are out yeah. there in the world, and they're feeding themselves, and yeah. they're listening to things. There's a lot to be said for sort of getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and and it's it's also nice to just you know to be in a doctor's office waiting room or something, and to talk to somebody about yeah. something that's not like what's on stereo gum that day or something, or like oh. You know what I mean? Like to, to, to discuss something. And I don't mean something banal like the weather or something. I mean, just yeah. to like have a conversation with a, a human being. Like recently I was sitting at a coffee shop waiting for my wife and, and these Jehovah's Witnesses came up. And I've never been the type to like slam the door in those people's faces. Yeah. Up, but I, I do like to sort of – and I want to say challenge them because that sounds like almost – You're not Bill Confrontational. Maher. Yeah, I'm not Bill Maher. <laughs> I'm not being confrontational. Yeah. I'm just like, well – you know, I'll ask them like, well, if you were raised Jewish, I, mean, I asked them first, like, were yeah, you yeah. raised? Were you raised in like the watchtower scene? Yeah, yeah. Where, and inevitably they were. Yeah. And I said, well, if you were raised Jewish, do you think you'd be here proselytizing yeah. trying to get send me the Torah? You know, are you and saying we, that, that them going door to door doesn't necessarily have a high success rate of converting people? Um, probably not. <laughs> but but yeah, but I mean, but, but what I'm saying is that like it was a conversation yeah. and, and it stuck with me. And, and I remember and my wife wrote up and was kind of giggling about it, like chuckling that I was talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses. But to me, that was like that was an interesting conversation about ideas that I had with strangers yeah. it wasn't about like i said something banal like the weather or politics and it wasn't like about records or like hell hartley movies it was just like we had this exchange of ideas and i don't know it felt it felt good you know my day job is at a site called TechCrunch, which is a big technology site and and the way that when my parents friends ask me what i do you know it used to be harder to contextualize it and now i tell them you know the show silicon valley and then like sort of go from there <laughs> when you engage with someone and then invariably the topic of what you do for a living comes up how yeah. do you contextualize what you do to people that's a great question um it's something i've actually had to struggle with because usually i try to, to avoid the topic like if, if i'm working like doing roofing work or something i try yeah. not to talk about music at all You're kind of embarrassed by it's not embarrassed it's just it would be so difficult and maybe i'm not giving those people enough credit yeah. but it'd be so difficult to try to explain like not what it is i do but why i do it because inevitably because the question if is you're like, not bob dylan you know if you're not like right. the beatles they're like how do you a how do you make money doing it and b like are you wasting your time right like clearly you're not famous yeah. i haven't heard you on the radio yeah. so like why why you know like aren't these the dreams you're supposed to give yeah. up so i try to avoid it but you know if, if i'm talking to someone who at a record store I'll, I'll say one thing about my music if they're asking what it's about of course those people never ask but if you know the average person you know uh out in, out in the world i'll just say well you know it's sort of like i mean i really like neil young and bob dylan you know that usually shuts the conversation down i mean i've been tempted when to just ask, say when they ask you what you do you tell them you like neil young and bob oh dylan. i mean like i mean i say well i'm a musician yeah. you know i tour and and make records okay. and stuff and then if there's a follow-up question like well, what kind of music is yeah. it you know i'm always tempted to say it's like it's like jazz fusion because that'll totally shut the conversation down. there's no follow-up there you know because sometimes when you're like oh i really like neil young you know that's that's, that's, a, that's a reference point a lot of people know he's, he's been like, on snl like more challenging frank zappa <laughs> yeah, yeah more time signatures imagine he had more disdain yeah. for his audience yeah and that's, what it oh, like. that's tough that's tough although I, I would kill to have his band man george duke and yeah. ruth underwood no, they were that was very a, good music yeah. but, but, yeah. but they clearly had a disdain oh, for yeah <laughs> yeah I and mean, he was he was definitely a, a, a yeah i wouldn't want to be in a band with that well that, that's the other thing too like th this is actually an interesting thing i think probably for you as somebody who's done as much as you have and things differ that much from from record to record and in a sense I don't know if ethereal is the right word, but to you, at least everything just sort of like lasts for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. Transient, maybe. I don't know. Sure. This is something I, I bring up a lot on the podcast because it's something that I've sort of struggled with over the last several years. As far as like what I do for my main job, I'm, I, I write words on the Internet and that's that's very ethereal. Right. Every once in a while, someone will come to me and tell me that they like something that I wrote and I need to fight the impulse to not just question them, but, you know, to almost like challenge them that that's the thing that you like, that that's the thing that you sort of isolated. There's a certain aspect of ingratitude in that for yeah. sure. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess an example would be um, 
I made a record called Second Attention that everyone's, well, not everyone, but a lot of people seem to really like. And because of my personality or maybe because of my background, my response was not, wow, well, I'll milk this for three years and tour this record and then there'll be a 10 year deluxe anniversary. My, my reaction was, oh, well, wait till you hear the next thing. Yeah. And like, couldn't wait to get back in the studio and like prove that I could like top that record, which was in retrospect a mistake. Um, because of the way the music industry works for one thing, but also it's not, that was not great motivation. It wasn't time to make another record. When somebody's reference point is something that you did, you know, 10 or however, 10 or almost like 15 years ago, is that a weird, uncomfortable conversation? Because, you know, you've been working in earnest and you feel like you're constantly getting better. Yeah. That that's the thing that they identify with. Yeah. I I relate to what you're saying. Absolutely. But I think for me, um, the idea that a stranger has one wooden wand record in their yeah. house is is enough for me. Okay. Like I think that's really cool. Yeah. Like the idea that someone in Boise, Idaho, right now is driving around listening to a record I made even 15 years ago, it's kind of kind of yeah. awesome, you know? Y- yeah, I, I am tempted to say, well, well, have you heard the new record? Because it's like way better. <laughs> you feel strongly enough about your output that there's not sort of a certain thing. There's there's not one or two that sort of stands out as maybe not being up there with the rest of them. Oh, there's there's more than one or two. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Yeah. But 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 I mean, I'm not the ultimate arbiter of yeah. what of that quality. I mean, if if a person is like, I really love that tape you made or whatever that I don't remember making, uh, who am I to tell them that it's yeah. like bullshit? You know, like I'm not gonna t- or like, oh, that was a weird one. I, that was a failed experiment. Like, let's say, oh, that's great, man. I'm glad you glad you dig that. You know, it's. Uh, Are there ones that feel like failed experiments? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but I think that's that's part and parcel of doing this. But it's... at what point in the process is, is it clear? Because obviously, like you've got you've gotten to a certain <laughs> point where you had a certain amount of faith in it, and, and you're able to sort of, like you said, ship it off into the world. Yeah. When is it clear that something didn't quite work? Yeah, that's it's interesting because because like there's there seems to be a thing right now where there's a lot of articles about artists rating their own catalog, yeah. and counting them down. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Because in retrospect, you know, the hindsight, you say, well, that didn't land or that didn't. But I don't know if there's a time limit. It just may be when you think about it. Because I don't I don't think a lot of artists spend a lot of time listening to records yeah. I made ten years ago. I think when they come up or maybe when they're designing the set list and they're like, what are we going to play tonight? You start noticing that oh, we're not playing anything from record X mm. or whatever. Like well, because people never ask for those songs yeah. or we don't like playing them anymore or um i don't know it's 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 a weird thing but um my friend hans chu who i play with sometimes he's a great piano player out of new york he just finished a record and i said well how do you feel about it he's like i feel about 80 percent." and i said that's the exact right number yeah. because if you felt 100 percent, well that's your last record right you've you've achieved the pinnacle of what you're doing <laughs> yeah yeah so it's, it's only like gonna 80, be downhill from there exactly yeah. so 80 percent is perfect because the next yeah. record you're going to be striving for 100 percent, and you'll land it maybe 80 or 85 and or maybe 60 who knows but the you know, the challenge is to keep trying to better what you did before. You had a flirtation with a major label. How did that process, how did that actually impact the album itself? Oh, it was a catastrophe. Yeah. It was a catastrophe. Um, what, what, what external forces made it that way? Uh, there was a lot of internal forces yeah. that made it that way. But um, as, as a student of like punk rock and growing up reading Maximum Rock and Roll and stuff, it was funny to see how many of those those warnings were coming to life. Like they were materializing yeah. as if in a ghost story. Yeah. Like A&R is the label. A&R leaves the label. No, no longer, you no longer have an advocate at the label. You go up and meet people at the label. Next time you go there, it's a completely different group of people. 
you know, like all these things, like, you know, you're a small fish in a, in a big pond, all the cliches and you yeah. call up and you, you're on hold and it's like, they must be talking to, you know, Rihanna. They must yeah. be talking to Jeff Tweedy or something. And so it's like, you're on hold and you're just like, oh, right. I'm not important here. Um, but it was, it was an interesting experiment. I think like anything, it builds character and you learn a lot. I learned a lot during that time, but it was a strange thing. Um, I, on, the, on the other hand, I feel fortunate being probably one of the last people my age to have experienced that sort of glut. I mean, that's sort of like generosity is really, I mean, let's be quite honest. I mean, we were able to make the record we wanted to make. We were flying people out. We basically had a wish list and we, we, you know, it was, it was a pretty great experience that I don't think a lot of people get to do that. There are definitely like a few points you can point to in history where it was very clear that for whatever reason, like post grunge is probably the best example in our lifetimes that I can think of where record labels were clearly just throwing anything against the wall. Sure. And on a whole, it was a disaster, but there are some like really great bands that had a really good opportunity because they didn't know any better. I mean, think about some, there's some amazing records yeah. that came out of that period. Like Royal Trucks is Thank You is, yeah. is a great example. That's one of my favorite records of all like, time. Like Cracker, like somehow. Kerosene you know, like, Hat, yeah. yeah. Melvin's um, Stoner yeah. Witch, amazing yeah, yeah. record. All the like, Screaming e- Trees. Literally every band that Kurt Cobain wore a t-shirt of, like Daniel right. Johnston. Right, or the, or the Thurston was like, hey, <laughs> yeah. David Geffen, yeah. sign these dudes. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But uh, yeah, it was a really fruitful time. And it's uh, and I guess like um, while my experience definitely was, was later than that, there was yeah. maybe still some like residue of that. Like let's... Let's give this stuff a try. This underground stuff. Let's see if it'll it'll fly. Was it'll, was it, was it like know. a Wilco that you were benefiting from? I don't. Well, originally I was signed to None Such. Yeah, and that's how it all started. So I don't know. I don't know if they were looking. See, that's the thing with with major labels is if you don't have someone there who's knows what you're doing and knows what your intentions yeah. are, they don't really know what to do with you. And I think at the time, people who never heard or weren't familiar with my back catalog were like, "Is this guy like?" wolf eyes or is this guy tom petty you know yeah. like where do we slot this it's like too weird for like this crowd yeah. but it's like it's kind of too straight for that it's a crowd. lot of uh, space between those two <laughs> right groups. and i think maybe, maybe in that space lies wooden one yeah. <laughs> maybe i'm maybe i'm unique in that and yeah. i'll take that that's why you should start great. telling jehovah's witnesses when they ask you <laughs> right. what you do it's, it's like, like well you know like wolf between... eyes and tom petty yeah. like somewhere yeah i like that actually that's fine if somebody said that about me i mean yeah so that was a kind of weird experience but uh, uh it was so long ago now it, it almost feels like like a greek myth you yeah know? <laughs> <laughs> what were your expectations going into it? Well, um, I can now say uh, in, in retrospect that like calling the record Waiting in Vain was not an accident. Yeah. Um, because there's a line in the record, Waiting in Vain for Easy Living to Start, you know? And it's like, I was always sort of cynical and maybe skeptical of it. And, and outwardly so. People around me at the time, managers, label people, the band, they all knew kind of was like, everyone was like, this is going to be great. I mean, that line's cynical, but uh, there's maybe a little bit of hopefulness in it. Yeah, well, if you're waiting in vain, yeah. though, I just yeah, I felt I like I felt like, oh, this is the big record, huh? Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so yeah. maybe like you make your own luck and self fulfilling prophecies and all that. I mean, certainly I'm guilty of, of uh, a certain degree of self sabotage. But the offer was on the table, and you you couldn't possibly turn it down. Yeah, it seemed it seemed foolish to turn it yeah. down. And and at the time, the people who were around us were not like douchey people at all. They were friends of mine, people who I've worked with before, who like. We're, we're given these opportunities to, to, to like sort of, uh, you know, bring their friends up. Basically, like you're talking about like Kurt Cobain wearing a t-shirt, yeah. Thurston Moore working yeah. as A&R for DGC. Yeah. Like they were he's like, he's been very good to you. Thurston's the greatest. <laughs> I, I have nothing bad yeah. to say about that. He's I, I saw you open first on a gig at Webster Hall. Oh, that was, yeah. 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 yeah uh, Thurston was hugely instrumental, but a yeah. lot of people early on like Slim Moon and, and Josh Bloom from Fanatic and a lot of people were just, 
they were advocates for us and they were they were people we knew they were people who like we had the same records and the same friends so it didn't feel like yeah. we were making this weird step into this nether world but unfortunately it was like a house of cards and it, it's probably a, a tale as old as time i mean for every big success story of a band on a major there's there's like hundreds of yeah, I did a record on a major, and then that, now yeah. they own my second record, and I, in ten, it, like, I haven't heard it in 10 years. You know, like, luckily I got out with, without anything like that happening, but it was definitely not the greatest experience overall. The music that you produced during the time suffered for it? Probably. I, I, I still like that record. There's a lot of, of, of pain in that record, but I, it was probably the record the, the record I made that I was least involved with, which is, which is funny because it's the only record that really bears my full Christian name, you know. But uh, yeah, I remember when I think about that record... And I always say, my, my line is always, my job's done when the band has the demos. Mm-hmm. My job's like 90% done. I write the songs, and, and then they, they turn it into something else. But with that record, that was an extreme example. Like my, my memories of making that record were not being in the vocal booth or like doing guitar dubs. It was sitting in the lounge like watching yeah. like Aqua Teen Hunger Force, a show I haven't seen before or since then. But I remember like binge-watching <laughs> while like there were hand claps hand clap overdubs and, and multiple things happening in the other room that I had no... Talking meatballs and milkshakes must have made the experience that much more surreal. Yeah, pretty surreal, yeah. <laughs> it was San Francisco, too. Yeah. It's an easy town to get in trouble in. Yeah. But uh, but again, like I said before, and this is consistent, like when I'm done making a record, I feel good about it. And when I left that... When I left Tiny Telephone, which is an amazing facility, an amazing studio, yeah. I felt great about that record. We gave it the car test. You know, yeah. you listen to the rough mixes and you get yeah. psyched and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad so-and-so played that part. So, and that was no different. It was yeah. just, it was the sort of the after effects of the record that kind of bummed me out. But that's life and that's the music business, you know. Was there a sense, you know, from the fallout? I mean, did you ever question this is maybe the end of what I'm doing or, you know, that, that I've been to, I've kind of like hit some sort of peak and it yeah. didn't quite work out? No, I'm not so fatalistic about that. It was more just that for better or worse, there are wooden wand fans who don't even know that record exists. Yeah. So it almost seemed like, a, ironically, it was a blip. It really didn't, it wasn't, it didn't affect me negatively or positively yeah. very much. I mean, it certainly didn't affect me positively in the long run, but uh, it was, it was nice to have the money and it was nice to have the, the resources, but it, I don't think that suddenly that we lost or alienated people yeah. because one of the main problems at the time was that people didn't know the record existed. So I really, it couldn't alienate anyone because they didn't hear it. Is there a recovery period required? Uh, it was, it was really good to be out on tour by myself when that, when that record dropped, because it gave me this sort of, I was on a tour that I always describe as a cross between like vanishing point and Brown Bunny, where I was like on this existential, like, like very, like not hellish, but very American kind of road trip where I had a lot of time to think. I mean, the band kind of bailed on the tour pretty early on. It was like, it was like a really long over a month long a little tour lost highway in there a little bit of lost highway yeah maybe a lot of lost highway but uh it gave me time to really reflect on it and, and i started immediately writing new songs yeah. and they were songs that i thought were really dark but i guess looking at them now they're also kind of funny it's it, it resulted in the record born bad which i think is still my wife's favorite wooden one record which is funny to me there's never been a point in in all these in all the wooden one years where you were second guessing doing it and and going forward well, um, I always say like every tour is the fail- farewell tour, yeah. and I'm like kind of half joking. So yeah, I mean, but I don't. I know. I know. I can't really do anything else, yeah. and I still do enjoy doing it and making records. So I don't know. It's it, it, some days are better than others, like any job. You know, some days it, it's just pouring rain, and you know the, the key breaks in the door or something. You know, and then other days it's like the sun's shining yeah. and like the the you know the, the uh, food truck is open or whatever. You know, whatever. Take you know, these little moments of bliss. So it's uh, I don't think it's unusual in that. And I, I've never had like a crazy like crisis where I really swore off making records or anything. I still like doing it. It's still fun. 
There you go, that was James Toth of Wooden Wand. Really enjoyed that conversation. I'm not sure if you picked up on it while listening, but the sound actually changes a couple of times over the course of the interview. That's because we got moved twice during that talk. Uh, we started off on stage. It was at Baby's All Right, where he played a show in Brooklyn. We started the interview off with with two chairs on the stage and then got moved by the opening band and, and got moved one more time. But a uh, very fascinating conversation nonetheless, and he was very interesting and, and forthcoming. And I'm a big fan of his work. He's put out a lot of great records over the years. His newest one is called Clipper Ship. That is out now. Thanks so much to him. Thanks to Nathan at Riot Act for helping set that one up. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show... Please consider supporting us over on Patreon, or if you don't have any money to toss our way, it would be a lot of help if you could rate us over on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is you, you get your podcasts. Uh, like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And uh, I think that's about all I got, so uh, I will be back uh, just about this time next week. I'm taking, on a personal note, I am taking my first vacation in about seven years, so uh, hopefully I will come back a much less tense person uh, the next time you hear me on the show, but uh, we'll see. Maybe I will get eaten by a bear. Who knows what the future holds? I do know that we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L., unless, of course, I get eaten by a bear. 